Well, good morning. Good to see you. Um, those of you who haven't met before, my name is Ben Davidson. I'm the executive pastor here. And um, we have a few more, maybe a couple of three weeks before our senior pastor, uh, Daniel Bennett, is back from a sabbatical time. It's a time of study and rejuvenation, time with family. So we're excited and expectant for Daniel's return. Uh, for now, I'm excited to be able to bring you God's word today. Um, so as we get started, I, I want to just ask you a question here before we go much further here is uh, have you ever had the wrong impression or wrong perception of a situation or, or a person and because of that perception you had of what was going on you responded in a bad way let me give you a few examples here um, I tripped over a, a pair of tennis shoes in my hallway at my home and and that half a second in which I'm falling I'm already practicing the lecture I'm going to give to the person that left those shoes there, telling them how they're not supposed to be in the hallway, they're supposed to be in the landing, and how inconsiderate it was for them to put them there in that hallway, only then to land and look back and see, you know where I'm going, right? There are my shoes <laughs> there. I had the wrong perception there. Uh, maybe another example. Uh, you start watching a movie, you're falling in love with this certain character, and then about halfway through the movie you Notice that this character is starting to become a little more dark, a little more sinister than at the beginning of the movie. And then you realize that by the end of the movie that this beloved character is actually the mortal enemy of the rest of the characters at the start of the movie. You had the wrong perception there. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that having the right perception and knowledge of a certain situation or of a certain person greatly affects how we respond, doesn't it? So if I had the right perspective, I saw my shoes as I was tripping and saw that they were mine, I wouldn't have rehearsed that lecture in my mind. If I knew that character was going to end up being the bad guy at the end of the movie, I may have already made some judgments about them uh, at the start of, of the movie. Um, in the same way, and where we're heading today with our time in God's Word, I, I think our perception of Jesus Christ radically dictates how we live out our lives. Um, how so? Well, do you, do you ever find yourself wondering, why do I go through the struggles that I do? Uh, this isn't fair. Why do I have to go through this? Clearly, there's better timing for this in my life. Um, this is not where I'm supposed to be. If we respond like that, we're not responding well to what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Or do you ever find yourself questioning why you are where you are in your stage of life? I ought to be married i ought to be single i ought to be in a better job a different job i ought to be in a different school I, wasn't this all just a big mistake my life is a series of bad choices if we're frustrated with where we are in life there's potential that we're responding wrongly to who jesus is and what the bible teaches us about jesus sometimes our responses to life challenges show that we have an idol in life and i think our Phil Smith talked about that last week. Sometimes it shows our desire for self-sufficiency, a life apart from God. Uh, but maybe we're just not thinking rightly about Jesus. Uh, or maybe we, we have the information, but we're not processing it correctly. Or maybe we're just not really that informed about who Jesus is at all. I think we can all share in that struggle of having a low view of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, which causes our hearts to stray from him and... And not living out who we are in him. Uh, but here's the good news, right? As we, we raise our view of who Jesus is. And look at him as what the Bible says about him. 
we think rightly, and we can live as God intended us to live. And who wouldn't want that? So I'm excited to study Colossians 1, 15 through 20 with you today. You can turn there, but um, let me give you a little bit of background here on the passage before we stand and, and read it together. And really my hope today is for the believer to have a, a greater view of who Christ is and to respond to that greater view. Uh, but also for those who are not yet a believer in Christ. You, maybe you came here with a friend or uh, you worked out here at Five Points and, and heard the noise of the music and decided, hey, I'm going to check this, this thing out. Um, let me encourage you to, to stay with us because my hope is that the scripture will speak plainly to you and that any baggage that you or I have about what we've heard about Jesus or experience with Christians will kind of fade away and we'll see a clear picture of who Jesus is as a result of, of letting the, the Bible speak to who he is, not our experiences or, or people around us. So, so stay with us and I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. Um, th- this book that we're going to look at and, uh, called Colossians w- was written by Paul, um, but Paul wasn't the one that founded this Colossian church. It was actually founded by a guy named Epaphras, um, who was from Colossae, and, and Epaphras came to Christ while visiting Ephesus. Paul was there for about three years on his third missionary journey. Epaphras was visiting there, heard Paul proclaim Christ, and trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, then went back home to Colossae and proclaimed that same message, and a little church was, was formed. Um, fast forward a few years, and Paul is now imprisoned in Rome for proclaiming Christ, and Epaphras makes a trip to see Paul, maybe for some ministry training to encourage him. Uh, we don't know exactly the reason, but Epaphras was with Paul and shares about, hey, here are the struggles going on in my local church, things that are going on in, in the Colossian church. Um, so Paul, kind of this grandfatherly figure of the Colossian church, uh, writes uh, a letter to the church. At the same time, he writes uh, a letter that we now know as Ephesians, another letter called that we now know as Philemon, and he sends these three letters from Italy back over to Asia Minor to be spread around the churches. Um, so uh, Paul is the writer of Colossians, and that's how we have this connection between Paul and the Colossian church. Um, one study Bible uh, writes this theme of the book of Colossians. And then listen to this theme for a minute, because I want you to see as we read uh, 15 through 20, if you hear this theme throughout the verses that we read. Okay, so here's one study Bible lists the theme of the book of Colossians as this. Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. Okay, so listen for that you know, as we, we read uh, the scripture this morning. It's been said of this passage that it may be the most significant teaching about the person of Christ in all the Bible. Are you ready? Let's stand and read it together. Starting in Colossians 1, verse 15. Reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me have a seat. Let me pray for us as we begin to study this passage today. Heavenly Father, thank you that you make yourself known. That, uh, like in the book of Acts, we don't have to wonder 
is there an unknown God that we should worship? Uh, There is a known God, and we are grateful for your word that teaches us about that known God. And so we ask for your help today and for your guidance as we look to study this passage. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Some scholars actually believe this passage was a a hymn that was sung in in the time of of the writing here. And so I I first service, I put out the challenge, I'll do it again. Worship team, Mike, let's let's sing this. This would be a great, great hymn to sing if we can find the music for it. Um, I have two points to the sermon. They're kind of the the second and third parts of your outline there. The the first part is kind of a pre-point point, if I can can say that. And, And that's basically this, what's the fuss? What's the fuss? We have Paul starting his letter in a typical manner where he writes a a greeting uh, to the church he's writing to. And then um, he uh, writes some some words of thanksgiving to the Lord for what he's doing in their lives and for what God is doing. Um, And now he could have, hearing about the problems from Epaphras, he could have started saying, okay, now here's what you need to stop doing. All right, Colossians, I've heard what Epaphras has said. Seriously, let's just knock that off. All right, and, 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 and let's start doing these other things and start kind of addressing a lot of the behavioral things that are going on in the Colossian church. But, but what the fuss? Why, 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 why all this fuss about who Jesus is in the midst of this? And let me, let me give, give you two quick reasons why I think uh, Paul gives this fuss to this treatise of who Jesus Christ is. First is uh, Paul knew how a high view of Christ affects one's view of life. He knew if you have a low view, how that affects your life. So let, let, let me give them a high view. As we start here, I don't just want to address behavior here, but I want to get to their hearts. What do they really, really believe about who Jesus is? When we have a high view of Christ, we start to see the divide there, don't we? We see him as high and lifted up, as holy and perfect, and we start to see ourselves in comparison to that, and we see our sin, the grossness of our own hearts. And then we see the glory of the gospel message. That Jesus would come to die and take the wrath deserved for me. Now all I know is grace, right? We see our deep need for our salvation. We see our deep need for grace for our sanctification to live out the Christian life as well. If we have this view, you see, Jesus becomes more than just someone who is a good example. He comes, becomes more than someone who helps us when we're sad or struggling. He becomes more, of a life, more than just a life coach of some kind. He becomes more than a therapeutic helper in the time of suffering or just a cheerleader helping us as we struggle through this world. He becomes our all-sufficient Savior who took the wrath of God upon himself. Let me give you an illustration here. If I have a low view of my wife, Casey... She wouldn't stand out in this room to me. You know, she'd just be another face in this, in this theater. But when I view her as the gift she is to me, uh, to our kids, and I acknowledge her for the position and the role that she has in my life, my view of her is elevated. And I respond differently. You see, she's not just another woman in this room to me. And when she comes into five points and walks down the hall, I greet her differently than I greet you. I hope you think I'm happy to see you, because I am. And I hope you feel greeted warmly by me. Uh, but I'm not going to greet you like I greet my wife. Because she has a role in my life that none other can take. And, and so my view of her is raised as I have that knowledge of her and I understand who she really is. She's my wife. She's my wife. 
And so we consider who Jesus is. We need to have that high view, right? We look at ourselves and we see later on Colossians in chapter 3, uh, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's what's in me, sexual morality, impurity, uh, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of all that, that's in me, the wrath of God is coming upon me. And Jesus says, I've got it. The wrath of God is upon me instead. And my view of Christ is raised. In that song that I just quoted, all I have is Christ. He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. So that's my first thought when I think of what's the fuss? Paul, why are you going into this treatise on who Jesus is? Paul knew how a high view of Christ affects one's view of life. Secondly, Paul wanted to address specifically what the Colossian church was going through. Generally, have a high view. But Colossian church, you need to fight off this low view that you have of Christ. And what was that low view? You see, a heretical teaching had, begun, had become evident in the Colossian church. There was this mix of this pagan belief and Jewish tradition kind of intertwined within the church. The pagan belief was to call upon angels to help us, to protect us from evil spirits and the like. The uh, Jewish traditional uh, belief was you have to do these ceremonial ritual, rituals in order to earn your salvation. And those were mixing in together into the Colossian church. In fact, there's evidence of a, a magical necklace that was made for protection from these evil spirits that, that read, uh, Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this. Flee, O hated one, Solomon pursues you. All this perpetuated by some type of spiritual guru or group of gurus that were within the Colossian church that were saying, we have this special information from God. Um, we have some secret evidence of things you need to do that are related to ceremonial law and worship of angels and calling upon angels for protection. Listen to us. Uh, these people have, or person have, had kind of relegated Jesus to kind of like that cousin at the family gathering that's a little bit weird. You know, we're glad you're here, but kind of stay over there, will you? Um, that's what their view of, of Jesus was. Christ was not seen as adequate for salvation. One must have this superior, superior mystical, secret knowledge as well as the gospel in order to fully please God. That's my second thought on why all the fuss. Paul needed to help the church fight against the low view. So here's Paul in this Roman jail hearing this information from Epaphras, and he says, I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to greet them. I'm going to thank them and thank God for all that he is doing. And then I'm going to tell them about who Jesus is and raise their view of Christ. So let's start into verse 15. What does Paul say about Jesus? First, Paul calls Jesus the creator. This is verses 15 through 17. Jesus the creator. And Paul lists out ways here in which Jesus is the creator. So first and foremost, Paul says, if Jesus is going to be the creator, he needs to be the visible image of God. You need to understand Jesus as the visible image of God. So in verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. What does the word image here mean? It means a, a copy, a likeness. So Paul was combating that heresy in the Colossian church that Jesus is some type of lesser God than what Paul would, had preached them and what uh, uh, he had preached to Epaphras and Epaphras to them. So Paul takes the bull by the horns immediately here and says, Jesus is God. And if you're going to see him as creator, you first need to see him as the living God. 
he wants to put Jesus in that high position. So by saying he is the image of God, he's saying that Jesus was created, uh, well, it's not created, but, but Jesus as creator created man to have a personality like God, uh, emotions like God, ability to feel, think, and create. But, but unlike Jesus, see, man's limited in that point. See, Jesus is God. So Jesus has all those things because he is God, but he has the moral image of God as well. He has perfection within him. He, has, he is holy in his nature. Now, me left to myself, I am not that, right? And so Paul is emphasizing that, that separateness, that Jesus is God and I am not. This would really spit in the face of those gurus, wouldn't it? That he's not just the crazy cousin in the corner. He is God. Hebrews 1, 3 calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory. goes on to say that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. This refers to an engraving tool that stamps out the exact copy. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the visible of God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He claimed equality with the Father. He claimed to have a unique relationship with the Father. He claimed to be sinless like the Father. He called on people to believe in him no less than they believed in the Father. He claimed to be the judge of all mankind like the Father. He accepted worship of his father, followers like the Father. Stones were picked up to stone him at his testimony that he was like the Father. We can comb the scriptures and find unanimous agreement that Jesus is God and is over all creation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues. Another aspect of Christ as creator. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. Okay, he's the image of the invisible God. He's also the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witness movement would say that this portion of verse 15 is evidence that Jesus is not really that special. He's not God. See, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's born just like the rest of people were born. There's no godliness in him. He's not God. He's just like us. He's the firstborn of all creation. Well, we need to show compassion for those that believe that, but also just say simply, just a simple look at the Greeks shows that that's not the case. The word firstborn does not mean that he was the firstborn meaning he's just like us. Now, my family, uh, except for our six-year-old, all ran in the Good Neighbor Days 5K yesterday. And in all races like that, there's a, a, you hit the finish line and they give you a place, right? You're a ranking. You're a one, you're two, you're three, you're four, you're 50th, <laughs> whatever place you come in. And we tend to think of firstborn of all creation in that sense, that he's firstborn, like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, right? That is not what Paul's intending here. And that's where the Jehovah's Witness heresy goes off the deep end there. Firstborn there, the Greek is simply just a ranking. It's a, a status. It's, it's he is head. He is over all of creation. He is ranks over all of, of creation. Um, so there is a, a word for, that's translated firstborn that's related to the first, second, third placing. But that's not the word that Paul writes here in, in the Greek. And, and really, it doesn't make sense for it to even mean that sense of placings like a race because he just got done saying what? He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. He wouldn't go on and say, but he's not God. 
And so the context there calls for uh, the idea that Jesus is God and he ranks over, he is head over all of, of creation. This heresy, though, uh, cont- has, you know, was in the early church. It continued in the fourth century. A guy named Arius uh, preached this heresy saying that Jesus can't share his essence with anyone, not even God or anybody else, so he can't be God. It was called Arianism, which is much like the Jehovah's Witness belief today. And a, a song came to my mind from the 90s, and I, I looked it up, and I thought, oh, boy, it's, I remember a song that's 20 years old. I must be getting old now, right? Um, but it was a song, song by Joan Osborne. You remember it's called One of Us, if you were uh, alive and listening to this kind of music then. Um, but the lyrics go, what if God was one of us? Kind of bring this low view of Jesus. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Just another sojourner through life um, like, like the rest of us. Um, that is not the view that Jesus, uh, that Paul was giving us of, of Jesus. And there's, there's lots of other ways that this idea of firstborn was used throughout the, the scripture. Uh, Jacob was born second to his brother Esau, uh, but Jacob was considered firstborn. He received the inheritance. Israel was, was not the first group of people on earth, but they were called the firstborn in Exodus and also in, in Jeremiah. In a Psalm 89, 27, uh, God says this about the Messiah, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God calls the Messiah the firstborn, then goes on to say what that means. He will be the highest. He will rank over all the kings of the earth, all of, of creation. So another aspect of Jesus as creator is, as Paul continues, he goes into verse 16 and says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created. He's the agent of creation. Scripture supports this. John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world, and so on and so on. So this grass, this grand Jesus is our creator. Now I want to give you an idea of the, the vastness of his creativity, and I hope I have all these facts right. You know, we, th- we think of the earth as a pretty vast planet, don't we? I read something recently that says, you know you're from the Midwest if you describe um, how far away something is the number of hours it takes to drive there, right? And so we think, oh, that's, that's seven hours away, or that, that takes three hours. That takes 24 hours to drive there. And we, we think, well, that's such a vast, a vast way to go, isn't it? Um, well, did you know that this vast earth that we describe and how many hours it takes to drive places, that 1.3 million earths can fit inside the sun? 1.3 million earths, isn't that staggering, can fit inside the sun. The light that that sun pours out travels at 186,000, now you expect me to say 186,000 miles per hour, right? 186,000 miles per second, miles per second. And it takes that light eight and a half minutes to reach earth. Now that's vast, right? Um, the near, next nearest star, called Alpha Centauri, it takes that light four years to even hit that next star, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. The number of stars, uh, most scientists would agree, literally equals the number of grains of sand that we have on this earth. 
So despite the vastness of the universe, there's us with our, our lungs putting out and breathing in oxygen and carbon dioxide, our, our brains firing, our hearts beating, the vastness of the universe, and here we are. Some scientists are communicating a principle called the anthropic principle that says that it seems that the entire universe is created to allow for the earth to be. That it seems like the entire universe, the vastness of all I just described, is created so that the earth could be at that certain axis tilt it needs to be on. That it would spin at that certain rate. They would be placed that distance from the sun to not freeze us out and not to burn us up. It shows that all things were created by him. It shows that he is before all things. He is preeminent. And Jesus created all those thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, this vast creator Jesus. He's over those angels that you've been told to worship or ask for help from, for protection from evil spirits. All things were created by him. It shows that he is before all things. And in verse 17, Paul just says that. He is before all things. In John 8, 58, Jesus says that before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, I am. I, I am before that, I'm after that, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. And in me all things hold together. And as we continue in verse 17, he is the sustainer. He keeps the balance in the universe to sustain our very lives. He keeps the skin on our bodies, our hearts beating, our brains firing, our lungs breathing, rivers flowing, gravity pulling, and the earth turning. John MacArthur says this, Jesus must be God. He made the universe, existed outside and before it, and preserves it. See how many religions say Jesus was just a, a good example, he was a great prophet, but he wasn't God. Uh, that, that's hard for me to process because the scripture and, and other ancient documents in history show us that Jesus didn't claim to be those things. He didn't claim to be a good example. Follow my example and that's only, or just listen to my prophetic word. He claimed to be God. I, I remember reading a book uh, when I was a freshman at Illinois State University called More Than a Carpenter, a short little read by Josh McDowell. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's got a chapter in there and it says, Lord, liar, lunatic. Basically saying that in light of who Jesus said he was, in light of all the history and ancient documents that say Jesus claimed to be God, we only have those three options for him. He can't be a good example only. He can't just be a prophet. He was either Lord and is either Lord or he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God but claimed it anyway. Or he was a lunatic. He did not even realize he wasn't Lord but claimed it anyway. He was crazy. Those are the only options we have for Jesus. In light of what the Bible says about him and what we see, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. A good man, a prophet are not options for us. But I kind of see the, I don't know, the, the sinful bent of, of Arius, uh, of, of Joan Osborne, of, of the Jehovah's Witness heresy to, to kind of try to bring Jesus down because it kind of brings me up a little bit. It kind of feeds me, strokes my ego a little bit to say, yeah, Jesus, he, he's just one of us, just a slob like one of us. We're, we're very similar in that. Um, but that is sin. It's a sinful view of who Jesus is. 
as far as application of this, this point as Jesus as creator, see, as we have this, this high view of Jesus, we see that he is essential for all of life and ministry. We begin to see that we are very, very small, but so well taken care of. We begin to see that we should not overemphasize ourselves and as we do our discipleship of others or our counseling of others because we are small. Um, let me ask, are there any postal workers in here? Anybody here work for the post office? Yeah, I'm going to potentially offend you right now, so I just want to make, make it clear who I'm offending. Um, I, I, I heard this phrase, more impressive is the mail rather than the deliverer. More impressive is the mail rather than deliver. Why do we love seeing the postal truck pull up to our mailbox or love hearing the little door on, on the mailbox go up right by outside our door? Um, is it because we love to see the postal worker in and of themselves? No, why are we so excited? Because they're bringing the mail. <laughs> they're bringing the mail. If they knocked on our door and, and said, hey, I just wanted to say hi. It's kind of hot out here. You got a Coke or something? Uh, maybe we'd be nice to them, right? But that'd be a little bit of... Aren't you bringing me my mail? I'm excited to get my mail, right? So as we do our counseling, as we do our discipleship, as we lead in ministries and care for others, it's not about me, right? I'm just the deliverer. I'm just delivering the mail. I'm just exemplifying Christ. I'm just showing Christ. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And we begin to see that my goal is not to make myself look good or to puff me up that I have some special spiritual insight that no one else has access to. My goal is to help that person become like Christ, to deliver the mail and help them to see who Jesus is and help them become more like Christ. My goal is not to just help my friend just have some relief from pain or let me just tell you whatever's going to make you happy. My goal is to help you become more like Christ to show you that worship is ultimate. The, the, the pain, the struggling you're going through, my goal is not just to help relieve you of the pain, it's to help you to see Jesus more clearly through the pain. When our kids are, are uh, fighting, I don't, your kids don't fight, but my, my kids do, um, Casey and I try to ask them, what is your goal in your sibling's life? Now, honestly, my heart just wants to say, hey, knock it off, will you? You're keeping me from getting things done that I want to get done. Uh, so I, this is no pat on the back to me or, or to my wife. But what we try to say to our kids is, what is your goal when it comes to your sibling? And, and they know the answer. They're struggling at that moment. But they know their answer is to help my sibling become more like Christ. That's your goal when it comes to your sibling, is to help them become more like Jesus. And so my goal is not just to, you know, hey, knock off that stuff. My goal is to lift lift up their eyes from the sin that they're involved in and help them to see a clearer picture of who Jesus is. What's your goal when it comes to your sibling? It's to help them to see Jesus, become more like Jesus, to worship Jesus. And so lift your eyes from that sinful thing, that idol that you're worshiping, and see Jesus more clearly. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is our creator. And so as we think about our involvement in ministry and life, we need to have that high view of Jesus as our creator. And what a privilege we have to be able to have the truth of the high and lifted Jesus right in front of us. And be able to share that with others. So let's look at the second aspect here. The second aspect of Christ that Paul challenges the church to consider is Jesus the reconciler. So I'm just going to comment briefly here 
on these different aspects of Jesus as our reconciler. Rapid fire here. First, he's the head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus redeems to himself the church. This is uh, 18 through 20. Jesus, the reconciler. In verse 18, he says, uh, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, um, the head. Why? All these different ways that, that Paul could refer to the church. He calls it the body and, and Jesus as the head. The way in which access to the whole body, nourishment, the wisdom of, of the whole body is in the head, not in those gurus. It's Jesus. He is the head of our church. He is the beginning. It goes on in verse 18. He gives life to the church. He's the source of our redemption. The word beginning here uh, is a sense of, of source as well as, as primacy. He is the beginning. He's over everything. Going on in verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, right? Firstborn, and in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, of, of all those who will ever be raised from the dead, Jesus has primacy over them. The same word for firstborn of all creation, over all creation, is firstborn from the dead. Rank, position, not order. Rank, position. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why would Paul say that? The fullness of God, everything you need to get access to God is only through Jesus. It's not through these special insights, these ceremonial laws, these pagan rituals. Everything you need is through Jesus, the reconciler. What's this look like for the believer? What does this mean? What are the implications that Jesus is my reconciler? One pastor says that the word reconciliation here in this passage is one of the five great words of salvation, okay? Justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, and reconciliation. Listen to these great truths this pastor writes. In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner, sta- sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt is paid and forgotten. In adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. Five great words of salvation, justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, and the word that Paul uses in Colossians 1.20 reconciliation see the word reconcile here means that a change of relationship has happened we were once his enemy and now we are his friend now a heresy that can pop up here people that have proof text uh, this passage would say but it says he reconciles all things to himself see universalism everybody goes to heaven doesn't matter what they believe we all go to the same place people use this but let me explain it to you the esv study bible note says this very well Jesus reconciles all things to himself. It means this. As the prince of peace, Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as his friends. As for non-believers and and the demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them for their rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as conquering king one day. So, what if we truly grasped the far-reaching implications that we're reconciled with God, that we are his friend. We'd see, right, that salvation is only from the Lord, that there's no human being, there's no creature, 
There's no work that we can do that can ever save us. Now, I know for many of us in this room, we intellectually agree with that. I understand, Ben, that it's not through any creature or human being or through any work that I do that I earn my reconciliation with God or receive my reconciliation with God. And we understand that intellectually. It's what they say, right? The largest distance in the world is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. We struggle with living that out, don't we? Because I think if I fully embraced the fact that I am reconciled fully to God, I'd stop trying to be good enough for him. I would stop trying to please people. I'd stop trying to look good on a stage on a Sunday morning. I'd stop worrying about what the other people think of me when I'm singing worship songs to the Lord and how I should look or behave. I'd stop demanding my rights. God, you're doing this to me, but I deserve better. Now that sounds silly, right? Intellectually, I understand that most of us in the room would say that's a silly statement. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? To the believer with the right knowledge of, Jew, of, of who Jesus is as the reconciler can now have hope that we can live beyond our fallenness. We can now have hope that if I have enmity between me and another person, that the greatest enmity of all, me and God, has been paid for. And so I have that hope that I can resolve that with another person. I need to continue to see myself as small. If, if, if we're passed over for a promotion at work, do we demand our rights? I deserve that. No, believer, what do we deserve? Remember that Colossians 3 passage, those things that are true of us? Because of those things, what's coming? The wrath of God is coming. That's what I deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, took that wrath upon himself through Jesus. Because of his marvelous grace, I, I see him as huge and me as, as small. Uh, recently, I became a wearer of a hearing device. I'm 39 years old, and I, I now wear a hearing aid. Um, not something I expected at 39. Um, and uh, I didn't ask uh, Pastor Kent if I could share this illustration, but I did it in first service, and so I'm going to do it in second service too. Um, I, I, Kent and I love joking around together, and uh, I, I said to him jokingly, Kent, tell me I'm too young for a hearing aid. Tell me, tell me. And he got that kind of Kent Cloder glisten in his eye and smiled. And he goes, tell the Lord. And I just laughed hysterically. And I'm so thankful for a friend that would love me enough to caring and lovingly tell me, tell the Lord you're too young for this hearing aid. You see, because he divinely placed this in your life. He created you. He's your creator. He's the one that's reconciled uh, you to him, himself. He has this trial for you, as seemingly small as it is, to... Uh, to shape you to become more like Jesus and realize your fallenness, help you see your sin more clearly. Now, he didn't say all that, but he did. Tell the Lord. And that's what it said to me. He is my creator. He is the one who has reconciled me. I don't need to fuss with God for any trial in my life, whether big or small. I know that he is high and lifted up. He is exalted. He is the king of all kings. He sent the universe into motion and yet preserved 
my life. So as we raise our view of Christ, we think rightly about him. And we can live as we are intended. So as we struggle with our low view, it causes our hearts to stray. And we don't live out that purpose. So as you trip over your figurative pair of shoes this week and start to fuss with God or with others around you for why this is going on in your life, remember the high and lifted up creator and reconciler of all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we don't have to wonder who you are, that you are our God, and your word speaks so clearly. Um, God, I don't pretend to believe that I can be this great deliverer of truth, but God, you are the male. You are who you say you are in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And may that resonate in our hearts, God, and may that change us from within. Nothing external, God, but only you working in our hearts. We pray that you would change us through your word. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.